There we go. All right, let's pray and begin. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Illumine our hearts, O Master, who love us mankind, the pure light of the divine knowledge, and open the eyes of our mind to the understanding of thy gospel teachings. Implant in us also the fear of thy blessed commandments, that trampling down all carnal desires, we may enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing such things as well pleasing unto thee. For thou art the illumination of our souls and bodies of Christ our God, and we ascribe glory, together with thy Father, who is from everlasting, and then all holy, good, and life-giving spirit, now and ever, to the ages of ages. Amen. All right. Good to see you all this morning. You. We are in chapter 14. I believe we're on verse 14. And to give a little bit of context, let's go back and see where 14 began. Remember, we had the lamb standing on Mount Zion and the 144,000 with his name and his father's name in their foreheads. They sang a song. And then... Then we had these angels flying and doing different things. And the first one proclaimed, Fear God and give him glory, for the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the fountains of water. That's going to be the clue as to what we're going to see happen next. And the angel says, fear God, I give him glory, for the hour of his judgment has come. We're going to see how that gets fulfilled. Then the second angel said, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of her impure passion. We're going to hear a lot about that, especially when we get to chapter 15. And we had another angel, a third. Um, see, if anyone worships the beast in his image, receives a mark on his forehead and his hand, he shall drink the wine of God's, God's wrath. Poured unmixed into the cup of his anger, he shall be tormented with fire and sulfur. In the presence of the holy angels. You hear about that right soon. And we ended last week where the voice from heaven said, Write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. Henceforth, blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest our labors, for their deeds follow them. So, judgment, blood, worship of God, the endurance of the saints, all that we're going to see unfold as we go forward here. And it's important to remind you that because if we look at this as just sort of uh, what looks good or what looks bad, what did we say about that from the very beginning, about what looks good and bad and what looks powerful and looks weak? What is Revelation trying to teach us? Nice and loud, I can hear you. It isn't what it looks like. You hear? No. It isn't what it looks like, she said. So we're always being told, be careful of the appearance and don't be, what's the word? Deceived. Don't be deceived. <laughs> All right. So let's continue forward now. And 
And let's see, we want to read just a few verses. There's a lot going on here. Verses 14 through 16. <coughs> Volunteering? <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, I will. Thank and you. I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for, your, for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and on the and the earth was reaped. Okay. Okay, he's right. Wow. Who is this? Who's on the cloud? Jesus. Yeah, one like a son of man, with yeah. a golden crown on his head. He's a king. He's a ruler. Um. This idea of coming on the cloud, we heard this actually by Christ himself, who said when the Son of Man returns, will come on the clouds of heaven. Mm -hmm. And a couple interesting commentaries about this. Uh, let's see. Here's one. He who sees the Lord, who is worthy to become the Son of Man, who is riding upon a cloud. This is either in reality a cloud but the gospel also speaks of this, whose witness we have referred to in an earlier discussion. Or the cloud is a certain angelic power, for it is written, he mounted on the cherubim and flew, he flew on the wings of the winds. He calls the angels a cloud on account of their sublimity and their exalted nature and rank. Um, here's another interpreter. Or rather, he calls the mother of God a cloud on whom he rode, honoring her who is his mother according to the flesh. For indeed, Isaiah foresaw her in this manner, saying, Behold, the Lord is seated on a swift cloud. He will come to Egypt, and the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence. So a lot of ideas of what the cloud would be. Anybody found it interesting that the angel is telling him what to do? <laughs> I found that very interesting. That's your, that's your deacon helping you through. Exactly. I was going to say, this is one of those things where sometimes <laughs> it's, it's somebody calling the shots, like a subdeacon or the deacon. <laughs> right. I will, I will see our, our good subdeacon come out to you sometime and he'll say. <laughs> <laughs> that's right, Father. <laughs> we have to be cued. We have to be told what's, what's going on now. Good morning. Well, if you ever see me hold up a, a three letters, W-I-U, it's wrap it up. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I've said that to Doug. I was going to say, did you get to your husband? <laughs> this is the yeah. symbol, right? For this? Or... Oh, that's good, too. <laughs> well, I also I told one, um, one priest once in the Catholic Church, he was a young priest, I said, if you see me do this in the back, it means <laughs> it's time to be over. This is a <laughs> Like I'm hanging myself. I got it. <laughs> <laughs> so now you know the cues. It's not that bad. I know. It's funny. That's <laughs> uh, funny. All right. So the angel calls, says, put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come. 
and the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. What is this idea of harvest and reaping? What happens in a harvest? What do you do? You separate the good from the bad, the chafe from the grain. Exactly. And that's what we're going to see happen in very vivid detail. And again, remember, we've seen this idea of what's powerful, what's not, especially when they're seeing so many of their fellow Christians go off and be killed by this great power that looks invincible. We're going to be told in the next chapter to how one-sided the power of God really is, despite what appearances look like. So we're going to see harvest come. Harvest, judgment, reaping, all, all referring to the same thing. Father, I, um, I've heard that in the uh, first century Palestine, when it came to harvesting and reaping, there were actually three separate uh, times during the harvest season. For instance, according to what I understand, the, if you had a field that was ready to be harvested like a field of wheat, the workers would go in and take the first 10% of the harvest because that belonged to the Lord. And so they would take the 10% first off the top and set it aside. Then there was the general harvest where everything was harvested and brought, you know, separated as Deborah says, and then brought into the store. And then the third step in harvesting was what we find like in the book of Ruth, where there's the gleaning, where people were allowed, the poor, the disenfranchised were allowed to come into the field and whatever had fallen, whatever was not gathered up, they were allowed to gather up. So there was some percentage of the harvest that was left over that they were allowed to have as sustenance for themselves. And so um, to my mind, that helps to explain the fact that uh, the angel is going to say, put in the sickle more than once. Interesting. All right. Um, on this idea of separating, uh, here's Caesarea Zavaro who says, the one like a son of man is Christ. He's describing the church in her glory, especially since she is white after the flames of persecution. The gold crown is the elders of their golden crowns, and the sickle in his hand is that which separates the Catholics, not Roman Catholics, small c, the Catholics from the heretics. Mm -hmm. And the saints from the sinners, just as the Lord speaks concerning the reapers. So we're going to see a great separation come out here. All right. Any other questions on that? All right, so before we get to the next section, what is this, uh, this reaping? What, who's, who's in charge? <clears throat> well, when we think of it as far as we're concerned, it's the Lord. Right. Okay, and that's the idea we're going to see because it's going to get a little bit graphic here, and we have to remember what's the point we're trying to to understand that despite everything you've seen going on around you, look at who's really the powerful one. All right, so let's read 17 to 20. Who would like to read? I can. Thank you. Then another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven. He also having a sharp sickle. 
and another angel came out from the altar who had power over fire. And he cried with a loud, loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city, and blood came out of the winepress up to the horses' bridles for 1,600 furlongs. furlongs. Yeah, mine says stadia. I don't know if stadia is a, what is, anybody knows what stadia is? Yeah. It has to be a measure of, of distance. I think it's a, is it a horse's step? Is that what it is? Stadia? Yeah. That's what I thought. So furlong, a furlong is like the horse's stride, right? It says in the footnote, Father, in the study Bible, the Orthodox study Bible, um, the absurdly large amount of blood, 1,600 furlongs, is about 184 miles, and suggests the severity and completeness of God's judgment. Yeah, so there's, I've got a couple of different interpretations of that number, because there's nothing really exactly obvious about it, but let's use the numbers we've used before. And how do you break up 1,600 or 1,600? Any thoughts? Again, the study Bible says four by four by 100. Okay, so there's one. We, the number four has been significant, meaning typically the number for creation, the four corners of the earth, the four directions of the compass. Um, so that four by four is complete, and then times 100. So overly complete, like a, absolutely everything, a great number. Mm -hmm. 144, I was more of a factor of 12, yeah. 4 times 4 times 100 is 144. Yeah, 144, right? 44. 4 times 4 times 100. 4 times 4 times 100, right. I'm not even multiplying, I'm saying you got 100 and you add that 4, 144. They're using the same symbols. Yeah, oh, the 144 is more a factor of 12. Right. I wasn't mathematical. <laughs> but you're close because another one is, um, let me find it here. Because that's one way, four times four times a hundred. The other one was, here we go. This is Andrew Caesarea. By the 1600 Stadia, we learn of the great chasm that separates the righteous from the sinners. So that's first of all, um, You'll notice it says that the winepress of God was trodden outside the city. And all these are different commentaries here. They all talk about how that this is going to happen outside of the presence of the people of God because they don't want to spoil their paradise by seeing the suffering and the punishment of those who didn't follow God. So there's a separation there. But in terms of the number, he says... Uh, for these were perfect and evil and did that which is abominable, and therefore 10 times 100 signifies the complete magnitude of their evil. 
while the 600 suggests their eager engagement in sin through the misuse of the creation, which was created in six days. And again, sometimes we don't know which the author means, but by looking at different interpretations, you kind of get an idea because we're looking at different ways of, of looking at it, but both underline the same point. This is the fullness of those who have um, been rebellious against God. And we'll, we'll read a little bit later that, that one of their, their main sort of accusation that they took the blood of the martyrs. These are the persecutors of the church. Here's no, one. Go ahead. I don't have the, um, I've got the thing here, but it's, a, it's quite a few um, verses to read. But this is one in the, um, in the Bible down here. It says to look up first Enoch 60, 11 through 21. And those were some of the cues that I used before. And when I printed out the book of Enoch to read along with our other readings, I didn't read it this time, but I've done it in the past. You don't remember what it says, do you? Um, I have it right here. I don't know. Do you want me to read it or just, I, I was just scanning the angel who went with me, showed me what was hidden, what is first and last in the heaven, in the height and beneath the earth, in the depth and at the ends of, of the heaven and on the foundation of heaven and the different chambers, the winds, the moon. And I was trying to, to see uh, all the divisions that are made among the lightning may be, um, the host that may that they may obey um it's it's a i i i don't see the relevance from at this moment but i just wanted to point out that it that i learned a, a lot more about what's going on from reading that whole book yeah and angels are our guides they're messengers right so often what they're doing is they are uh like, for example, in the entire book here, this is an angel revealing this to John. So the angels are, are those that bring messengers, they guide, and, and what you're talking about is very similar to when John talks about it, an angel took me and showed me this and showed me that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. So what, what do you, the fact that, that God's wrath comes and puts... Uh, the those being punished into this this wine press. What's the message? Well, Father, I think going back to uh, to uh, verse six and seven there, where it says the angel said, "Fear God and give glory to Him." For the hour of his judgment has come. And so those who are righteous will rejoice. Um, and those who are, are not, their hour of judgment has come. So whether you're, you, know, you need to fear God and give glory to him because the judgment has finally come. That's what I would say. Yep, that's it. And again, think of the audience. This is the audience that's seeing 
the church persecuted, people are being uh, taken and killed, and looks like their case is hopeless. Uh, think about the, um, remember the, the souls of the martyrs under the altar? When, O oh Lord, will thou bring vengeance? And they were told to wait a little longer. Well, now we're going to see that, that the time is coming. You know, I think it's also, it's, it's when we think about um, the wrath of God, it's a very, in some ways it can be a difficult topic because we, we want God to fit into sort of what we think God should be like. Um, but I think if you take the, all of this in the context that it's in and you think of the horrible stories of, of the saints and how they suffered, um, I've told the story a couple times this week of St. Sophia. We had her, her feast day was last week. And you think about the, the cruelty of, of those who, I don't, do you all know the story of St. Sophia? No. Okay, so St. Sophia was a, a woman. She had three children. She lived in Rome. Um, and she was of the nobility. And so it came time for one of the worship to the false gods of Rome, and she didn't go. And, you know, if you didn't follow those rules, you were, you were liable for, for uh, punishment. So what they did is they, they arrested her along with her three young girls. Uh, they had the names that were um, in Latin, faith, hope, and love, or faith, hope, and charity. And in order to get St. Sophia to renounce her her devotion to christ they were they thought okay we've threatened her she's not going to give in we'll threaten her kids and for sure she won't withstand that and so they come and they tell her that if you don't renounce christ we're going to torture your children and you think about it a little bit and they leave her and she's now with her three young girls and instead of using that time, they thought, okay, she'll use it. She'll come to her senses. She'll deny Christ. She'll worship the false gods. She teaches her little girls to get ready for this coming torture that's about to happen to them. But no, it'll only be a short time. Then we're going to be with Christ. We'll be in paradise forever. She strengthened them for the persecution. Then they come back, and they, they tortured each one of those girls horribly, one at a time, in front of their mother, in front of the other two also. So, and then eventually St. Sophia uh, dies. So you think about that, that experience. It's hard for us to understand the wrath of God because we don't always see or think about the degree to which God's most beloved have been treated. But when you think about that and you say, okay, should those people be punished? Then the wrath of God really makes sense. Is God going to say, well, that didn't really matter. That, that, that those Three little girls were tortured in that way. It doesn't matter. And the fact that through the scriptures primarily, but through the preaching of the church, everyone has a chance. We get to pick our sides. No one is making persecutors to be persecutors. And you're going to see this come up now in we'll get into chapter 15 as the bowls of wrath are poured out. Anytime anybody wants to, they can repent. But they don't want to. They choose not to. And so that's, that's the context for the wrath of God that we're going to hear a lot about. I can't remember the, the 
the verse, but it, it says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Right. And so that's, that's him coming back and, and taking care of, of everything. Right. Yes. Your questions are good. Well, in reading all this, and, and I've never read this before, and I told you before I wouldn't do it unless you were guiding us through it. See, I was okay last week. That was the good part. But now I'm seeing all this again. Mm -hmm. It is scary, Father, to, to, to read it and think, okay, are you on the edge of making a mistake and with the wrong people? And when in the story you just related to me about suffering of those little girls and the mother, and I'm thinking, how could, I mean, I know it's man doing it, but God could stop it, right? Could prevent that from happening to them. It doesn't bother you at all. So you got a couple of different questions in there. I got two questions. All right, what's the first uh, one? The first question is, in reading this, it, 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 do not be deceived. Do not be, you keep saying, don't be deceived. It's going to come out all right at the end. Right. But is there's always a chance that maybe you are going to make a mistake and go the wrong way, not not thinking that you're deliberately doing it. Okay, so, so could you hear a question? I can't hear Oh, yeah? Yes. Oh, okay. All right, so... One thing to understand is if you are careful, you won't be deceived. Deception is for those who aren't looking for the right thing. Okay. So if we're looking for our own benefit as we define it, we could be deceived. So the martyrs could have said, well, we don't want to suffer. We'll just say that we don't believe in Jesus. But he's making it clear that... Your, your faith is what's going to bring you in the end to where you want to be. But you're giving in to uh, earthly powers that look powerful and look like they should be followed. That's going to be, if you do that, then you're deceiving yourself thinking that that's the better choice. And then the mother, she, she didn't renounce God. And mm -hmm. she, but she had to watch her daughters be tortured or killed. Mm -hmm. How could she do that? Okay, so that your question there was, why wouldn't God stop it? Because he knew that he knew how faithful she was anyway, mm -hmm. and those little girls too. Yeah. Why couldn't he protect them? Why couldn't he let them escape out the door and get away from that? So if God were to do that, if He were to say, "Well, I don't want many people to suffer, I'm going to just stop things from happening." He would be siding with those that say that the suffering of this world is important. And the reality is, this world is full of suffering, not because he made it that way. He made it this world to not have any suffering. We're the ones, as a race, that made this world a place of suffering. What does he do? He doesn't control us to say, I'm going to push you around and force you to do this. Not because you can't, you can't love somebody and control them. Right? How do you love somebody and and always control what they do? You don't do that to people you love. You, you let them make choices. Even if those choices hurt you, you don't stop them. Somebody's saying something you don't like, you don't put your hand in their mouth and say, oh, you shut up now. 
right? Well, but that's not, that's not right, right? Okay, so we, we understand that love is stronger than suffering. So he could have stopped everything, but we'd all, like I've said to you before, we'd all be duct taped to chairs, nobody could move because he's controlling us, he's keeping us from doing anything wrong. What does that accomplish? He's not allowing us to make our choices. So in order to let us make our choices, it is gonna bring suffering. What does he do though? As we're gonna see when we get to the end of the, the, end of the book here, we're getting closer. He's gonna make the way forward for those that follow him. They may have temporary, very short-term suffering in this world, but they have eternal glory and, and bliss in the kingdom to come. And how does he tell us this? Primarily by entering into it himself. So what does Christ do? Christ who was not guilty of anything, who had never any need to suffer anything, being the Son of God, enters into the creation that becomes a place of suffering, not by God's doing, by ours, and then becomes the ultimate victim of the ultimate suffering. To show us that, even though it's difficult, there he was in the garden, Lord, let this cup pass from me. But showing us that that short-term suffering is worth it for the long-term uh, reaching of the kingdom. So he allows these things to go on. Um, he doesn't do it just to test. A lot of people think, well, God's just, this is just a test. We're the ones that made this world a world of good and evil. God gave us that opportunity in the beginning. Adam and Eve didn't have to eat of the tree. But they chose to exercise their freedom. And ever since then until now, we're always going to be given the chance to exercise our freedom to do what we want to bring us comfort in this life in ways that aren't really good, or to obey God and follow his way. And that's always going to be the choice, is who you loyal to. Does that make sense? Awesome. And, and just as a side note, my dumb mistake when I opened the garage door yesterday or Monday, and, and I couldn't imagine when you were saying, well, what was the blessing? What was your blessing? God was looking out for me. I made a big boo-boo. I know that. And and then after I thought about having to talk to you, yeah, he didn't let anything happen right. to me. So yeah, yeah, I got it. Good. All right. Anything else on this one? Comparatively. If you think about what we've seen so far, who's the greater power? The Lord. Right. Okay. Again, you're, you're think, think about this in the context. People are seeing this one got killed, that one got killed, this one was taken, that one was taken. Then you see in this vision that the ones who were doing the killing they're the ones, more blood will be spilled in their judgment against them. Against It's a rebalancing of, of the scales of justice, or rebalancing of power. All right, so just when we get a little scared, maybe, of the imagery, God's going to give us a little comfort here. Here it comes. Here it comes. 
They're all good. They're all good. <laughs> because it's going to get really ugly after this. <laughs> all right. Now we're in chapter 15. Would somebody read for us verses 1 through 8? <clears throat> I will. Thank you. <clears throat> then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who have the victory over the beast over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, for all nations shall come and worship before you. For your judgments have been manifested. After these things I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. And out of the temple came the seven angels, having the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, and having their chests girded with gold bands. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. All right, so here's a challenging thought for us. Is this a good scene or a bad scene? Well, they are angels, and they're not right. working against the Lord, so it has to be good, even though it doesn't sound very good. We'll go back to verse 1. Well, that's good, too, but remember, they didn't... Is it good? Yes. Yeah, seven angels. So Linda says verse one is good. And it says another portent or a vision in heaven, great and wonderful. So she's right. And yet it says seven angels which with seven plagues. Good yeah. or bad? Well, it's never good for us. us. <laughs> Even if they mean like hell, then it doesn't mean they're dispensing it upon us, does it? Well, we don't know who the us is. It doesn't say who, but here's the challenge for us. Right there, you have two phrases together great and wonderful, seven angels of seven plagues. Now, we normally divide good and bad into pleasant and unpleasant. And here it's going to challenge us to say if it's great and wonderful, can it be unpleasant? It's going to be unpleasant for a lot of people. But that unpleasantness is under the umbrella of God and his power. 
and his truth and his justice and his love. But then it says, if you finish that verse, it says, for in them, the wrath of God is complete. Right. So isn't that good? Right. So it's going to be over. The wrath of God has ended. That's good. But even the fact that, that this is going on, what's the vision? It's the seven angels with the seven plagues. And yes, it's good that it's the end. But he's not saying, well, it's good it's over. But here's, in other words, it's all thrown in together into this vision, which is great and wonderful. About the well, actually, this one it identifies as the Song of Moses, the servant of God. Now, who was Moses? What did Moses do? He delivered the people um, into Israel or uh, away from Egypt. Exactly. So there's a lot of parallels that we've heard already in terms of, of Moses. Because who is John writing to? He's writing to the seven churches who are being threatened with this big power, just like Moses and his people were. But Moses delivered them from Pharaoh and took them to the promised land. And he's saying, here's the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of whom? The lamb. The lamb. The lamb. The lamb. So there's a correlation, a connection being drawn for us of Moses on the one hand and on Christ, the Lamb on the other, but both doing the same thing, both delivering their people. Let's go back for a second to verse two, because it's, um, it's an interesting idea. I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who had conquered the beast in his image and number his name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. Um, did we talk about the sea of glass before? I don't, re I don't remember. Yes, we've talked about the sea of glass as um, the place that one of the unholy trinity come up out of. That's right. Okay, so you have the idea of the ocean is, is typically a place that's unwieldy. It's rough, the storms come, it's destructive. Um, and yet, when God is around, often we see this in, in Revelation, the sea of glass. In other words, when in the, in the Gospels was there a sea of glass? After Christ calmed the storm. Okay, so he's the one that, and they say, who is this that can even command the wind and the waves? Mm-hmm. So a sea is like glass when it's been calmed, and we see in these examples it's Christ. He's the one. But it says mixed with fire. Any ideas there? We getting talked about this earlier on. What's that? Getting things warmed up for the pit. <laughs> yeah, fire is really interesting. We talked about this, I think, maybe the first couple of classes on this. Fire does one of two things, right? Yes. It purifies. Yeah. Or it destroys. So or either it's going to consume and destroy, or it's going to purify. Now, is it a different fire for each one of those? Not really. Fire. So what we define <coughs> as what fire does, we think, okay, if someone's going to get burned with fire, 
we would see that as always a horrible thing. But fire in the scriptures is always going to be horrible for those who aren't prepared for it. It's going to destroy them. And it's going to be a purifying, cleansing, strengthening. Um, you think about a, a blacksmith. You know, they put that iron in and it gets red, glowing hot so we can forge it, purify it, get rid of all the, the dents and the dings. and the So, <coughs> same fire. And again, we have to... The whole message of the book is if, is if you're presented with martyrdom, see that what it is. And that fire of martyrdom is going to be a purifying fire, not a destroying fire. He's always trying to, to switch our view of, of suffering. So it's a sea of glass mixed with fire. And what is, what is the content of the hymn? What's the meaning? Well, it's praising God and re and and re you know telling us this, what's going to happen, sort of. And why is he great and wonderful? Because he's the Creator. He's the Lord and our Savior. He's Almighty. Mm -hmm. Just and true are Thy ways. Mm -hmm. O King of the ages, who shall not fear and glorify thy name, O Lord? It's a rhetorical question, but let's answer it. <laughs> Who's not going to fear and glorify his name? Satan, the mm -hmm. persecutors, the, those that are, that are standing up against him. For thou alone art holy, all the nations come and worship thee meaning they bow down. Why? For thy judgments have been revealed. Remember, this is all about the end. The sickle has now been put in. This is judgment going on. All right, and then the temple of the witness, the temple of uh, the tabernacle is opened, meaning we can see what's going on. <laughs> seven angels, the seven plagues, which we said back in verse one, is great and wonderful. Robed in pure bright linen and their breasts girded with golden girdles. This is power, this is glory. One of the four living creatures gave the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever, and the temple is filled with smoke. From the glory of God and from his power. Somebody's doing some uh, woodwork, it sounds like. <laughs> You know, the song is really interesting when you think back, back listening to the song and think back about um, what he was doing at the time. In what way? Oh, you know, leading um, the Israelites out of uh, bondage. Mm -hmm. Now, when he led the people out of, when Moses led the people out of the wilderness or out of, out of bondage through the wilderness, was it an easy road? Mm 
No. Ooh. And it was long, long and winding. <laughs> right, 40 years. Okay. And what happened along the way? Did they, were they so happy to be out there suffering? Right? They kept turning back, grumbling against God. Right? They complained about the, the, the food. Then they complained when God sent them food. All along, they kept suffering. They said, oh, we're better off. We should go back to Egypt. Well, and then they created their own golden god because they were tired of waiting for, for Moses up on the mountain. <clears throat> exactly. So a few verses back when you hear, here is a call for the endurance of the saints. Again, the suffering we go through in this short term, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived when you see the threat of martyrdom. Don't be deceived. And I would say for us, you know, we don't, we don't face that martyrdom of blood, but we face the martyrdom every day when we are tempted to do things that are not God's way because it's easier, because it feels better, because it's what's comfortable. And God is saying to us, don't be deceived. Don't give in. That's not the road that goes the right way. Yeah, that was a hard lesson for them, you know? And I wonder if I was in their place, if I would have done the same thing they did, you know? I pray that mm -hmm. I did not have, but I wonder if I may have tried to do things the easy way rather than God's way. Right. Yep. And I think we all face that every day. We face those choices. Anything else on this section? All right. So we have the seven angels coming out, the seven bowls of the wrath. We'll take these one at a time. The first bowl, somebody read 16, 1 and 2. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. So the first went and poured out his bowl upon the earth, and a foul and loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. That doesn't sound good. Oh. <laughs> Does it sound familiar, though? Yes. It sounds like the plagues of Egypt. Yes. Yes, our good subdeacon agrees with St. Irenaeus. He writes the following. The whole exodus of the people out of Egypt, which took place under divine guidance, was a type and image of the exodus of the church that should take place from among the Gentiles. And for this reason, he leads the church out at the last from this world into his own inheritance, which Moses, the servant of God, did not give, but which Jesus, the Son of God, shall give for an inheritance. And if anyone should pay close attention to those things that are stated by the prophets concerning the time of the end and to those that John, the disciple of the Lord, saw in the apocalypse, you will find that the nations are to receive the same plagues universally as Egypt once did particularly. Hmm? So... Yeah, we're going to see a, a, a connection between those plagues of Egypt and the bowls of wrath. Now, 
Now, a lot of people wonder, when does this happen? Are, or is the, are we going to be around for this? Will the church be around for this? And here's, here's one uh, commentary on that. We can interpret these things in a twofold manner. Either these events will occur literally at the time of the consummation, or they are to be understood allegorically. When the Lord addressed his disciples about the signs of the end, he spoke openly about the evil events that will happen at the time, saying, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, and nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and plagues and earthquakes in various places. All of this is the beginning of the birth pangs. And a little later he said, For there, for then there will be a great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. As each of the seven bowls is poured out, the events said to have occurred in the present passages should be interpreted in the light of those things. In this case, the sores that come from the first bowl would symbolize the tribulations and distresses that vex the souls of people at that time because of the rumors of wars. So he's not going to give us an exact answer. He's going to say either it's all at the end or understood allegorically about things that we're all going to have to endure. Well, Father, having... Um suffered through birth pangs of my own, I can say that that's something that, that happens throughout the whole thing. Like there are little moments that, that you're not suffering at the moment, but, it's, but it doesn't give up till the end. Yep. Yeah, that's the pattern. Really, it's a pattern for everything. It's the pattern for when... We are sick. Sometimes the, the sickness, we suffer from the sickness. Sometimes we suffer from the cure. You know, surgeries. I mean, now we have, you go to sleep, you're anesthetized the whole bit. But, you know, you still wake up and you've got all that suffering. So you yeah. think about, you know, um, preparing for something like a wedding, all the work, all the struggle. Um, that's, it's always going to be this pattern of, Strife and struggle, glory and celebration. You know, we have Great Lent, then we have Pascha. <laughs> we have Advent, then we have Christmas. That's, that's always in the pattern. And he's saying that this is going to be the pattern. It was the pattern in the Exodus. And it's also going to be, it was his pattern. It was Christ's pattern. Mm -hmm. It's going to be our pattern as well. All right, let's go to the second bowl. So I read verse three for us. Then the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it became blood as of a dead man, and every living creature in the sea died. Okay, does this sound familiar? That's, that's just like one of the plagues again. Exactly. <clears throat> now, what's interesting is blood is a very interesting um, idea that has a lot of symbolism. Um, what, what does blood do? It's life. It's, yeah. And then it's like pouring all the blood out, so into, the, into a lake. And, and yeah. You, you think about, you know, blood is 
it's what keeps us alive. It moves around our whole body. It feeds all the cells. It does all that. And, and in the Jewish idea, that's where your life was. Literally, your life was in the blood. Mm -hmm. why, by the way, if we follow the fast strictly, we can eat certain kind of shellfish, but no fish. Right. Because they have blood. Fish has blood. It means it's alive. And in our fasting, when we fast strictly, we don't do anything that takes life. No meat, no dairy products, which come from the animals, and even no fish, only, only like I said, uh, shellfish. So blood has the idea of being a source of life, but it's also, we associate it, especially when it's spilled, with death. The blood leaving the body is what, what, what we often associate with, with death. And here, the blood goes in the sea and it kills everything. Just like in, uh, in the Exodus when Moses turned the, uh, the Nile into blood. All right, let's do one more. <clears throat> okay. Then the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the water saying, you are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be, because you have judged these things, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. And I heard another from the altar saying, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. There we have it. It couldn't be any more clear in terms of this judgment. Why are they being judged? They have shed the blood of saints and prophets. And you'll notice that these hymns especially are making great efforts to describe the judgments as what? We heard it twice in this hymn alone. Is righteous. Yeah, righteous or just. Mm -hmm. Our God is powerful, but he's not unjust. He's just. Read your commentary on this. Those who stand around the heavenly altar send up a thanksgiving in agreement with that of the angel. For when he says, I heard the altar saying something, it signifies thereby those who minister at the altar. May it be that being delivered from all the sufferings described above, we send up to Christ a hymn of thanksgiving, to whom be glory forever. And this, uh, Andrew Caesarea talks about the altar. Sometimes the altar signifies Christ, for in him and through him are brought to the Father our spiritual offerings and living sacrifices, which the apostle had instructed us to render. At other times, the altar signifies the angelic powers, who we read are sent forth to serve for the sake of those who are to obtain salvation. And so they carry upward our intercessions and spiritual sacrifices. From this ministering altar, it says, a voice proceeded, commanding as just 
Commanding is just all the judgments of God that surpass both thought and expression. We have learned from the Gospels that the intellectual powers are glad and rejoice over the salvation of those who turn through repentance, but grieve over those who leave the straight way and yet give thanks to God for the punishment of those who transgress the divine commandments. And it ends with this. May it be then that our holy manner of life give cause for dejection to the demons, but a cause for joy to the angels, so that together with them rejoicing with a shout of gladness and the sound of confession, we might give thanks to Christ our God for his victory over the evil powers, with whom glory is due to the Father, together with the Holy Spirit, now and always and forever and ever. Amen. How about we end with that? So we got to stay on the right side. <laughs> Any closing thoughts or questions? All right. Well, let's see. I got to look at my calendar. Where did I put my phone? Oh, there it is. Are we in next, let's see, I think we're next Wednesday is our last Wednesday. We're going to go back to Thursday, I think. Yeah. Most people seem that Thursday seems better. But I'll give you a little heads up. I'm going to be gone for a few of those Thursdays. So the 8th and 15th will be no Bible study. So next Wednesday is the 30th. And then the following Thursday, we will the not. 15th, okay. Yeah. So next week, but not the two weeks after that. What did we learn today? They are all good. They're all good. Not all easy, but they're all good. Right? What's your comment, Alan? Uh, typically, when you go away for events, it's always toward the end of the week. Or when anybody goes somewhere for a long weekend, it's on Thursday. Should we, is Tuesday, Wednesday is not good for me. Is Tuesday a better day for everybody than mm. Thursday? I think you would have less interruptions on a not Tuesday, but I could be wrong. No. It's not good for me, but I'm just one person. There's more than me in this. All right. Stay with Thursday. Okay. Thank you, Alan. Thank you, Father. Thank you all. Thank you, Father. Have a good day, everybody. Bye. I'll see you in a while, Subdeacon. <laughs> yes, Alan sure will. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.